Before we get into this podcast, I just wanted to apologize in advance for all of my stuttering and bumbliness. In some respects, the guest on today's show is, well, he's an inspiration. So stay tuned and enjoy. up fellow travelers welcome back to the lost in transit podcast i'm your host spud groshong and yeah well here we are um today on the show i have chris brinley jr chris is someone i stumbled across on instagram some years ago and well i've been following his adventures ever since when Chris agreed to be on the show, I was pretty stoked. But because I hadn't done a podcast in six months, I was a little mumbly, hence the disclaimer at the beginning. So, without further ado, I bring you an interview with Chris Brinley Jr. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Chris Brinley Jr. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, it's cool. All right. Uh, Chris is a adventurer, mountain climber, photographer. He's been all over the world. Um, welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, Spud. No worries, man. Um, so let's start by you giving us a brief little event, a brief little history of your travels. Well, I am 30 years old this week. And until I turned 25, I had never been outside of the United States. I traveled quite a bit within the U.S., just on family trips and for university and work, but I never left the borders. And I was working in Los Angeles as an interactive art director at a big ad agency. And simultaneously, I discovered backpacking and wilderness for the first time in the, the sense of backcountry. And I started going out on these weekend and multi-day trips. And it just really captivated my spirit. And around that same time, people started taking notice that I had begun to document these trips through photography and writing. And I got the opportunity to go to Costa Rica to shoot photos and video for this locally owned adventure company. And so I went down there, 25 years old, and it was, uh, as they say, a culture shock in a lot of ways because I never experienced anything like that before. And we were in the jungle, staying at homestays, zip lining past waterfalls and just making sugar from sugar cane. And it was this really incredible adventure travel experience. And it was that moment that I knew that I had to keep doing this. And I was inspired by the storytelling aspect of travel. And I knew that I had to dedicate my life to that form of storytelling. That's and so, 
eight months later, I quit my job at the ad agency and took off for eight months on a trip around the world. And that was the beginning. Where did you go on that trip? When I left Los Angeles on that trip, I headed up to the Pacific Northwest and climbed Mount Baker. Didn't quite make the summit due to some pretty rough conditions, but we got almost up there before descending. And from there, I went over to Norway and spent a couple weeks hacking through Norway, doing some really cool treks. And then I went over to Iceland to do some uh, mountaineering attempts on a couple of volcanoes out there and didn't have much luck with summits, but got some epics nonetheless. And after that, I had a stopover in the northern part of Italy en route to Nepal. And then I spent about a month and a half in Nepal, uh, did a trek into the Kumbu region, which is where Everest is, climbed my first 6,000 meter peak there, and afterward went to Thailand and did a bunch of rock climbing and just rode motorcycles through the jungle and kind of was able to uh, to relax a little bit after what had been a pretty arduous journey, uh, physically, mentally, and emotionally, just with uh, the intensity of mountaineering and those big peaks. And so after that, I went back to Nepal, and then I went back to Southeast Asia, and I rode motorcycles through Vietnam for about a month, just like getting totally lost in these foreign cities where nobody spoke English and that was uh, one of the best experiences I've ever had while traveling. And around that same time, I decided that it was about time for me to go home. And the next day after I booked my flight, I lost my camera and my computer and all my hard drives with all of the uh, backups of the, the photos and videos from that trip. And so it was uh, kind of serendipitous timing and it reconfirmed that it was time for me to go home if I had any doubts at that point. So I flew back to LA and kind of uh, spent the next several months regrouping. Oh, wow. Then you lost everything, huh? That is incredibly depressing. Um, while you were in Vietnam, how was the, how was the motorcycle? the riding around so i did quite a bit of research before picking up a bike and what i discovered was that there was a really popular model of motorcycle called the honda win that most backpackers would turn to they are kind of like these aesthetic little bikes that just have a lot of character but the issue was most of them were not actually hondas they were these chinese knockoffs that were just incredibly unreliable and would break down every day and end up just becoming these money pits. But I discovered that there was a North Vietnamese manufactured version of that same bike. And so I was able to pick one up for about 450 US dollars. And that's what I spent riding around for the month. And during the course of that time, I didn't have a single breakdown, which is pretty unique for that type of trip sounds incredible yeah it was amazing 
I've had a few friends who've done the the motorcycle through Vietnam and they love, they swear by it and I think it's amazing. One of the absolute best experiences I've ever had to this day. Yeah, I, it would be, it would be fun. I wish I was more of a driver, <laughs> but that's, you know, neither here nor there. Um, so you've been back to all of these places. You've been back to Iceland and Nepal, correct? I have, yes. And have you reached anything higher than, what did you say, 6,000 meters? Uh, 6,000 meters is currently the highest class of peak that I've climbed. Um, one of them was 6,189, and the other was about 6,090 or so, which uh, for the people in the U.S., uh, that's just over 20,000 feet, about the same height as Denali in Alaska. What is what does your body feel like going that high? I think the highest I've been is five thousand meters, and I could take two steps and basically was exhausted. It really all comes down to acclimation. So on my first trip to Nepal to climb my first six thousand meter peak, I thought I had done a pretty good job acclimating, but again, it was my first time at any sort of elevation above forty two hundred meters, and the day before we were supposed to go to base camp for the climb, I had gotten some kind of sun poisoning and it just wiped all of my energy out and I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. I could barely get out of bed for a full day. And then the next day we went up to base camp and the next that night we started climbing. And so I really struggled with the physicality on that climb, but when I went back about 10 months later to do a second climb, I had a much shorter time in the Kumbu um, just because I had to get back out for a quick trip to Kenya from there. But I uh, was trekking up and I did the whole thing two weeks round trip from the uh, airport in Lukla where we flew into all the way to the village where the climb kind of originated from to the summit and back. And what I found was that even with that short acclimation period, having a higher degree of fitness and then just being able to pay better attention to the body and understanding what it would, how it would react in those circumstances, just knowing when I need to eat and that I need to continually stay hydrated and just really focus on those two elements. It helped tremendously. And summiting on that peak didn't feel any different than summiting Mount Whitney in California as far as the altitude was concerned. And it's what, 6,000 feet higher or something like that? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's incredible. Yeah, it was a good feeling for sure. Um, I was back in Nepal again in November and we didn't climb quite as high, but we did manage to get up to about 50, Eight fifty nine hundred meters, uh, maybe nineteen thousand feet total, and it was kind of a, a similar feeling there. So it was good to know that my body can kind of handle that altitude under the right circumstances. So it would be interesting to see, you know, what that limit is for me. That's that would be awesome. Yeah, would be a lot of fun. Um, so you've done all sorts of expeditions. Uh, you kayaked in Greenland and you, you took a boat to South, oh wait, no, 
from South Africa to Antarctica on the, on the, what was it? His name was Mike Horn, right? Yes. Uh, so Mike Horn is known by many in the exploration community as the world's greatest living explorer. And he's currently on this roughly two year long pole to pole expedition where he's circumnavigating the globe from north to south. And I had the opportunity to join a leg of that expedition. We started in Cape Town, South Africa, sailed down to a very remote part of Antarctica that had probably never seen human traffic before. And we docked on the ice and got Mike all set up. And then he spent the next 58 days crossing the continent solo, unsupported at its widest point. And so I was down there to document the sailing crossing as well as the start of his expedition. What's it like sailing through those waters? It was my first time sailing before. And so I kind of got thrown in pretty hard. Um, I had never been on a boat overnight. I had never been out on the water for more than eight hours at a time. And so it was a lot to bite off. The straits that we were crossing, the, the open ocean, the southern ocean, uh, during throughout those latitudes are some of the most notoriously rugged seas in the world. And so we dropped down through, uh, they call them like the roaring forties, the screaming fifties, the, uh, they've got all these kind of interesting alliterations to, to remember them by, but essentially the further South you go, the worse the conditions are. Um, we spent seven weeks total on that leg of the expedition. Six of those were at sea. And during that time, there were no port calls. There was no land in sight. And it was just gray sky, gray water for most of the journey. And the climax of the trip for, I think, the whole crew was right around Christmas time. We got caught in this squall. And there were 30-foot swells and 60-knot winds that continued for about a week straight. And at one point, we were sailing, and we got hit by this big wave. And then another big wave came and just kind of pushed the boat over on its side. And when that happened, one of the windows in the cabin blew out. And I was sitting right in front of it when it happened. And so the whole cabin just started flooding with this like Arctic, subarctic, Antarctic, I guess, technically seawater that was just incredibly cold, frigid and volatile. And so it was a pretty trying time for the crew, but everyone rallied together and we got the window patched up and the water drain, but it shut down all the electrical systems for a few days. And so things were definitely less comfortable than they had been for most of that trip. And it 
was just a reminder that what we were doing was very real and there were totally real consequences because if anything had happened to us out there during that storm, there was no going back. There was no one coming for us. We were totally on our own. That's, that's incredible. I don't even know what, what to say. Um, yeah, it's uh, definitely a humbling experience. Was was it ever life-threatening? You know, if the crew wasn't so adept and quick to react and so well-prepared, it very well could have been life-threatening. But under the circumstances, the way everyone worked together to handle the problem, it fortunately was not. So how long after you had reached Antarctica, how much longer were you on the boat? We reached Antarctica after about two and a half weeks of sailing. And then we spent a week on the ice just helping Mike prepare for his solo crossing. And then we spent another three and a half weeks crossing from the ice shelf all the way up to Perth, Australia. It was about 4,500 miles and it was a pretty long, desperate stretch in a lot of ways. We just hit the roughest seas and it was the longest we had been at sea for that trip. Okay. Wow. I can't even imagine what that's like. It was tough. Uh, in a lot of ways, it was one of the most difficult experiences that I've encountered not from the perspective of man versus element, but more so man versus self. I, because I'm not a sailor and I was just tasked with documenting the journey, I inevitably had a lot of downtime and would not have much liberty to go outside unless we were uh, just kind of like motoring through the ice flow, which was quite nice. But when we were actually sailing, I was uh, pretty much kept inside the cabin just because the seas were so rough and everybody had to be just kind of responsible for the boat. And it was really tough just to maintain sanity. Uh, just there was not a lot to look at and there was not a lot to differentiate between days and everything just kind of blended together for quite a long time. So it was some extreme cabin fever. Yeah, no doubt. Gotcha. Um, so short of the Mike Horn expedition, have you done any other, uh, have you done any other polar-type expeditions? I have not done any other polar-type expeditions, although I have had a couple climbing expeditions that were in subpolar or subarctic regions. Um, about six months before the Mike Horn trip, or Actually, about three months before the Mike Horn expedition, I went on an expedition to eastern Greenland. And there, my partner and I went and paddled 100 miles through this remote fjord system, 
set up a base camp at its terminus and then went and did a few mountaineering objectives, one of which we climbed the first ascent of a rock route on uh, just some alpine rock above this glacier. And that was uh, one of the most incredible experiences for a lot of reasons, one of which every single night from camp, we would get a northern light show. And so it just kind of helped to punctuate where we were because it was this spectacular showcase that is very unlike what is visible in many places of the world. I spent some time in Iceland previously and I had seen the Northern Lights, but the weather in Iceland is typically more volatile and you don't tend to get as much clarity in the sky. And so it's definitely more rare to see the Northern Lights in Iceland. But where we were at in Eastern Greenland, we had clear skies almost every single night and the auroras were so incredibly vivid that they just screamed out of the sky. And like what you see in photographs was really pretty an accurate representation of what we were seeing in person. I had a similar experience like that actually in Iceland. Uh, the northern lights were so bright they actually lit the ground up wow it was pr it was incredible it was the last night of 10 days it was amazing that's incredible yeah it was i loved it so much is there any continent you haven't been to you know the funny thing is i've been to six continents on the planet but i haven't been to the one closest to north america where i'm from I've never been to South America. That is that is kind of funny, especially with Antarctica being the hardest and you've been there. Is there anywhere in South America that you would like to go? Yeah, there are a lot of places I would like to go in South America. I'm particularly intrigued by the Cordillera. I don't think I'm saying that right. The mountain ranges in Peru and Bolivia. Uh, they have several like 6,000 meter peaks that are really intriguing and just these really rugged alpine valleys and it seems pretty spectacular, but I've yet to take a trip down there. Okay. Okay. Um, so with your Southeast Asia, besides, besides your motorcycle adventure, um, what what's your favorite favorite part of Southeast Asia? Yeah, favorite memories kind of thing. That's a good question. Uh, I think one of my favorite parts of Southeast Asia is in this region uh, called Phong Nga, and it's kind of central north Vietnam. And that area is unique because it hosts two of the three largest caves in the world. Uh, one is called Hang In and the other is called Song Dung. And I had the opportunity to go on a little overnight trip to Hong An, which is the third largest cave. And the ecosystems there were just absolutely stunning. We're talking 
uh, ceiling that is 300 feet high and just opens up into this massive mouth. And to get into it, you have to walk through this tiny little slit in a river and follow the water line. And it leads you into this massive chamber with pools and streams and sandy beaches. And it was just a pretty incredible experience. And the whole region around that cave is some of the most stunning terrain that I've ever seen. These limestone cross uh, towers just jut up from these fertile green plains and rivers wind through it. It really is something out of a fantasy story, but it exists in real life and it's there in Vietnam. I've seen photos of this place. I think I know what you're talking about. Um, where, Where's the other cave? Is it much further from that? The other cave is no. actually just a couple of kilometers away. So, and did you have the opportunity to visit there too? Unfortunately, I did not. Uh, that cavern is under a pretty protected state, and they have a very limited number of permits to go into it per year. And as such, the entry fee is several thousand US dollars. And at the time, I was not able to make that trip happen. Um, but uh, a sweet consolation was getting to explore the Hong An cave. Yes, that is, that's an incredible one. That's great. Um, so tell me about the celebrating discomfort thing you have going on. Yeah, so celebrate discomfort is not a new idea by any means. I think anyone who has been in a tough situation and made the most out of it understands the concept. And oftentimes, outdoor or travel experiences can facilitate that idea in a big way. And since I've been dedicating my life to adventure travel storytelling, I have had a tendency to focus in on these experiences that allow me to push myself or allow me to facilitate that same type of personal growth for other people that I travel with. And celebrate discomfort is just a simple, eloquent way to state that idea. And so when I kind of coined the term, it enabled me to really focus in what I represent and what I believe in, in the types of experiences that I want to be a champion of and have all of those touch points of communication go back to that single big idea. And why it's so significant is because when we have these adventure travel experiences that push us outside of our comfort zone, they force us to confront the best possible versions of ourselves. And if we can catch a glimpse of that version, then we understand that we have that in uh, a reservoir and a capacity so that when we're faced with these seemingly insurmountable challenges of everyday life, whether it's dealing with a death in the family or struggling at work or having to stand up for something you believe in, you have 
the fortitude to be able to pull from these experiences. And it all kind of comes back to this idea of celebrate discomfort. That's wonderful. I would have never thought of that, but it makes complete sense. And it very much seems like your travels are 100% related to that. I do my best. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, as far as mountain climbing goes, you spent a lot of time in France, right? In the Is that the Alps? Yeah, in the French house around Chamonix. What's uh what were the like elevations and things like that there? So growing up in a rural part of the US, I would hear a lot of stories about people going traveling in Europe or going backpacking in Europe and they would go to museums and the Louvre and canals in Amsterdam and have Italian pasta and all of these kind of cliches as related to Europe. And none of that seemed really enticing or really interesting to me. And I never really had much of a desire to go to Europe for those reasons. And then I was on a press trip with Julbo Sunglasses and they are headquartered a little bit outside of this village called Chamonix. And while we were on this trip to tour their factory and meet with some of their product designers and athletes, we had the opportunity to go into what is the birthplace of alpinism and that is Chamonix. And this is a mountain village that is in this valley just at the base of Mont Blanc, which is just under 5,000 meters. It's about 4,800 feet or uh, 4,800 meters or about 16,000 feet elevation. And so when you're in this mountain village, when you're in Chamonix and you stare up at the granite and ice monolith surrounding you, there's about a 11 or 12,000 feet of elevation prominence between where you're standing and where you're looking up at. And for reference, when you're in, say, the Kumbu Valley in Nepal, looking up at Everest, the highest point in the world, there's also about a 12,000 foot difference. And so being in Chamonix, looking up at these peaks, it's really quite Himalayan in scale. The main difference is the granite surrounding the village is just incredibly jagged. And there are these just very rugged spires that are like something out of a nightmare. But for a climber, in a lot of ways, it really becomes paradise because the rock is some of the best quality in the world and the lines are some of the most technical and difficult in the world. But at the same time, it's all incredibly accessible because you can take a gondola up to about 12,000 feet and then you've essentially skipped a pretty arduous approach and it leads you straight to the climbing. And because of that access, it is really the mecca for technical alpinism and alpine rock climbing in the world. And so people who go there and spend some time there have the opportunity to get right into the thick of it 
without having to deal with all of the the fuss of long approaches and they can really gain a lot of experience and have these big climbs and committing climbs without the similar grade uh without having a similar commitment grade because of the approach and so it really just acts as an amplifier for everything in the alpine and if you spend any time there you'll notice that it's also this epicenter for speed flying and paragliding and highlining just steep skiing like technical alpinism any sort of mountain sport everything represented in Chamonix is to the highest degree. And I've been fortunate to have spent a few months in that region, uh, climbing and skiing. Sounds like a wonderful place. I've, I've been to, I've been to the Alps before, but never, never to the Alps in France, never in Italy. I think I've been to Switzerland a couple times, but awesome nothing too nothing too adventurous i guess is the best way to say it it's a magical place for anybody who's interested in any sort of those mountain sports if they can spend even just a week there what they can come out of is just immense it's absolutely mind-blowing what is possible there okay so on just the aspect of travel, how, do you travel outside of work? Uh, a lot of ways, my work and my life have become very intertwined. And so when I am traveling, it's oftentimes for a project, for clients. And the result of that is that I'm able to do it more often than would normally be possible for a person working in a nine to five style job. But the flip side of that is when I am traveling, a lot of times I can't just totally unwind and unglue because I am thinking about this story or the deliverables. And so it's definitely a balancing act trying to ensure that I'm getting something meaningful from this experience while also coming out of it with something that will be of value to my clients to essentially justify my travel and experience in the first place. And so it's definitely a balancing act, but where I find the way that I'm able to make the most out of that is by creating these experiences that I'm passionate about and going to places that inspire me and combining those two so that the storytelling comes quite natural. And so most of the trips that I do, they are very much real, authentic experiences that I am totally into. And so that helps me to really stay present because if I was not into this project or this place, then it would be very hard for me to relay 
that to others, to my audience. And you can't really fake enthusiasm. People see right through it. And so if I'm not true to myself, I'm also not being true to my audience or true to the brands that I work with. And so it's very important for me to maintain that throughout my trips. And so that being said, there aren't a lot of times when I get to travel just for myself. But what I do make an effort to do is when I am on a big trip to take a week or two of time that is just for me or just for the people that I'm with and go be places I want to be and just kind of get lost in the culture and the food and the experiences. So it helps me to kind of recover or gather my thoughts after what are usually pretty intense experiences. Okay. I, I, I do the same with my job. Actually, I take time before or after and hang out, not working, enjoy as much as I can. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's a lot of fun. Sometimes it allows me to see a lot of parts of the world for, you know, cheaper. I don't have to pay for a flight. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is. Uh, I like it. Um, okay. So one last thing, and then we'll kind of draw this to a close. Um, if you could go anywhere in the world tomorrow, let's say, where would you go? That's a great question. If I could go anywhere in the world tomorrow, I would probably head to Chamonix. It's a pretty ideal time of year there right now. You can still do quite a bit of skiing, but the technical climbing routes are really starting to come into condition as well. And so it's really just a, a pretty awesome playground. And it's May, and so the tourist season hasn't quite hit the the swing and so it would also be pretty chill over there as far as that goes and and that's um it's kind of uh it brings me to another point like i because of the nature of my work i have the opportunity to go anywhere that i can come up with a project and there are these certain places in the world that i keep getting drawn back to over and over And in some ways, there's like a perspective that, oh, well, there's still so much more to see. But at the same time, places are so dynamic that you can't really fully grasp them from a couple of weeks or even a couple of months or years. And so when I gravitate towards a place, I find myself going there time and time again. So if I could go anywhere... Tomorrow, I would definitely be heading back to the French Alps. That's awesome, for sure. That I'm going. I am going to Europe in a couple of weeks, and I definitely want to go to Chamonix. It would be it's on the list. You got to make it happen. I will do my best. I have I have a week in between work, and that is all I have. And I have to be in England, so the best I can do. I'll. I got, I got to make it happen. Yeah, you do. <laughs> the present. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so tell everybody where they can follow your stories and kind of follow along with your life. Yeah, so the best place to follow along with 
me on the day-to-day is via my Instagram, at Chris Brindley Jr. But if you would like to get a more in-depth look at the stories that I'm telling from long-form editorial to video content, uh, editorial features, or podcasts like this one, you can go to www.chrisbrindleyjr.com. Excellent. Well, Chris, I'd like to thank you for being on the show, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, bud. I'm not necessarily sure how you guys feel, but sailing from South Africa to Antarctica sounds like it'd be pretty amazing, even though it's probably scary as fucking hell. Yeah, again, I'd like to thank my guest Chris for being on the show. Be sure to check him out on his social medias and check out his website. He is an incredible storyteller. You can check us out on the internet. We have social media. Uh, We're on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook. All Lost in Transit PC. Uh, you can check my personal Instagram. It is Spud Groshon, G-R-O-S-H-O-N-G. Um, if you can think of anybody that might make a good guest on the show, please feel free to email us at lostintransitpc at gmail.com. Uh, if you have time, please rate and review us on iTunes. And as always, folks, get lost.